on this computer. Welcome to the Nurture Hub Pregnancy and Birth Podcast with your hosts, Shari Lyon and Nicola Lay. Together, we bring over 30 years of experience in working with women and partners through education, breathing, mindfulness, and evidence-based information, and nurturing you through this transformation into motherhood. Join us on this journey as we connect with women and partners, mentoring, supporting, and navigating the ups and downs of becoming parents. Welcome back, beautiful mamas, and thank you for joining us for another very special episode. We have a very special guest we have invited um, into the Nurture Hub podcast today. We have Dr. Hazel Keedle. Hazel is a senior lecturer of midwifery at the School of Nursing and Midwifery in Western Sydney at Western Sydney University. She has over two decades of experience in as a clinician in nursing and, mid, and as a midwifery educator and re, and as a researcher. Her research interests are vaginal birth after cesarean and birth trauma and maternity experiences which she explores primarily using feminist mixed methodologies. Dr. Hazel Keedle's work is recognized nationally and internationally. She has made many um, and been invited to many different conferences and seminar presentations, and her research has been widely published in academic journals and books. She is the author of the book, Birth After Caesarean, Your Journey to a Better Birth, which is based on her PhD findings and Hazel is also the lead researcher on the largest maternity experiences study, the birth experience study. Dr. Hazel Keedle is passionate about improving the experiences for women during childbirth, and she's committed to using her research to advocate for women's rights and to ensure that all women have access to respectful, supportive maternity care. So, so thank welcome. you. Welcome, yeah. Hazel. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me here today. We're so excited and I also am really excited and hope you don't mind me sharing this straight up. I have arranged for Hazel to actually come to the Gold Coast in October um, to actually host her, her workshop. Um, this workshop is more aimed at clinicians and birth workers um, in the who work with women, um, but I... I missed your talk up in Brisbane. Um, I couldn't make that. And I'm like, if no one else is going to organize, I <laughs> I want to have this talk. And I know, Nicola, you were the yes. first to, to buy a ticket to it. I but was. <laughs> for any of the uh, professional birth workers, clinicians, midwives, obstetricians, anyone that works with women, if you are interested in attending uh, Hazel's workshop, it's a one-day workshop, which will be held on Saturday, the 28th of October. It's going to be in Rabina. There are limited tickets available. I will put the link in the bio. Come and join us. But thank you, Hazel, for taking some time out to to chat today and just even reading your, you know, what you're passionate about. It's just so in alignment, in alignment with Nicola and I and what we do and why we do this podcast. So yeah. thank you so much. You're welcome. And yeah, I look forward to the workshop. I really enjoy doing them. It's an opportunity to share the research that I've done and um, really look at some of the myths around the research around feedback. And my aim is to, I guess, empower doulas and birth workers and midwives and clinicians to then go out there and educate women and support them in the best way. So yeah, do come along to the workshop. I look forward to seeing you there. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, could you just provide an overview of your research on VBAC and birth trauma? Nicola and I have spoke about this in many episodes, mm -hmm. um, especially birth trauma, but what initially motivated you to explore this area of study? Well, as many researchers, um, it was a personal journey that led me to do what I do. Not that I thought it would end up <laughs> doing as much as I have done, but Certainly, um, I had a cesarean for my first, which was a planned home birth. Um, and I was really quite unwell during that first pregnancy. I had pneumonia. Then I had an unplanned cesarean for him being breech. Then I had endometritis, which is the old-fashioned childbirth fever. Like, actually, anything that could go wrong kind of did go wrong. Um, and yet I was told, well, at least you've got a healthy baby. But I wasn't a healthy mum after that. And I didn't do 
great physically or psychologically after that birthing experience. Um, and I thought, well, next time I'll have a vaginal birth. But then my little girl decided to come along much earlier than I had planned. So within four months, I was pregnant. Um, I didn't know for a few more months after that, but I, I then looked put my head in the research and was reading everything because it meant I was going to have a short interpregnancy interval, which would mean that no one would really support that from a VBAC point of view. But I went ahead and did it anyway. Um, and it wasn't an easy journey, especially, again, I planned to do that at home. My birth team couldn't be there. So I ended up in a hospital that I knew and they knew that I was a midwife. I trained there. And then it was a real battle during my um, hours of labor and it wasn't great. I mean, I think the, the one of the lowest points was when I was having my admission vaginal examination to see where I was up to um, and I was four centimeters. And, but while she was doing the internal, the midwife said to me, you know, we had a baby die recently from uterine rupture. Do you want that to be yours? Um, and so there, I, as soon as I walked in the door, basically, I got on my back, spread open my legs and experienced obstetric violence. So that was the start of my battle. And I did battle. And then the day at the time that they said that I, they would send me off to have a cesarean, which was four o'clock in the afternoon, obviously, so they can get theatres wrapped up for the day. And I uh, pushed her out of my vagina uh, and her time of birth was four o'clock. So it was it was a big journey. And it left me with two ongoing questions. One Oh, I felt amazing. Like I felt so healed. I felt powerful. I thought if I can do this, I can literally do anything. I was back to the powerful Hazel that I was before I'd had that taken away from me with my cesarean and, um, and yet even more powerful than I was before. So I felt amazing. And I thought, do other women feel like this? Or am I just a bit of a nerd? You know, my, my granny was a midwife. I grew up around midwifery and normal birth and she was a home birth midwife in the UK and you know like I was it just me um because I was a midwife and from that background or did other women feel as amazing as I did after having a VBAC but then my other question that was remaining was how on earth does any other woman manage to have a VBAC in this country when I was a midwife and I had to fight so hard and that those two questions stayed with me um and you know I continued working as a midwife um and obviously being a mum and then I bumped into Professor Hannah Darlin at an event there was a community event we were talking about um the local maternity hospital that was having lots of issues at the time and I shared my story and um Hannah pulled me aside after she doesn't remember this blessing because I'm always grinning her on this um, and we're, we're very close friends now but she um said to me afterwards you know you need to if you're interested you should do research on this and and find me out and she sent me a few emails over about a year uh, and then I went on my research journey with her so I started with a um honors um a master's of nursing honors where I did a in, independent research study on women's experiences of planning a VBAC at home so that was my first project and then while that thesis was being examined and I did publish on that paper while that thesis was being examined I was applying to get straight into my PhD uh, which was the VBAC in Australia survey which had a few different parts to it but one was following women through their pregnancy journey and then interviewing them afterwards and they did recordings after every appointment and then I used the findings from that which is the mixed methods side so that was qualitative I used the findings from that to design a national survey that women across Australia did um oh gosh back in 2018 or 19 2019 I think it was maybe <laughs> I can't remember um but I that's when I that's when I um I pub the paper was published in 2020 and I uh, yeah I did that national survey and so that gave me my PhD and I got five papers published from that PhD um and from then what from then onwards I was dedicated I moved into academia full-time um and when my first project PhD was was running uh, the largest maternity experiences survey that's ever been done in Australia. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, yeah, and absolutely. Thank you, yeah. Thank you for doing the work that you, you are doing because mm -hmm. it is going to change, hopefully, 
so much and it's it's so needed because for me uh, i seem to attract women that have lots of birth trauma first time round and you know no one really wants to the, the staffing at hospitals don't have time to debrief births anymore and and i think if we were able to help people through their initial trauma that that the second birth that they come to isn't going to be filled with so much and just the whole that you're right this country for me VBAC was just such a going to be a no it was a no from the very offset and I had to push 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 to even have a discussion so you know for you to be doing this research is so imperative for women in this country so thank you I really really oh well thank you I mean I think we can't have maternity services that are effective and sustainable if we don't care or listen to the women who are experiencing it and those and those voices oh excuse me (laughs) sorry about that those voices have got to be at the forefront of everything that we do and but unsurprisingly there, there is a lack of research in that area so you know we've been really building that up so that you know women's voices can be heard and their experiences um, are there and that that is really what should be designing services, not, um, you know, what healthcare providers think should be there. Yeah. And just touching on that, like how would you define birth trauma in the contact, context of your research and what are some of the factors that maybe contribute to it during VBAC attempts? Yeah, sure. So um, we know that there's about one in three women regardless of of type of birth, if we look at all women um, who've experienced maternity services or had a baby, that that say that they've had a traumatic birthing experience. Yet actually in my VBAC survey, so these are women who have a previous cesarean, that was as high as two-thirds of women. So we already know that the type of birth has an impact there because that had an increase in birth trauma rates. Then it's important to know what is birth trauma because there's a lot of stuff out there that, that say it's this and it's this, but actually the way that I've, over my time of working in this, it, the way I see it now is I see birth trauma as an umbrella term. And underneath that umbrella are lots of different things that make up birth trauma. And women may experience one of those, they may experience all of them, they may experience you know a couple of them. And that includes, so there is perineal, perineal trauma, but that is that severe perineal trauma is a very small part of of birth trauma it's not all of it it's significant obviously like I'm not saying it's a small thing if someone experiences it but it's not all of it then there's all the other all the other parts which are more psychological so there is maybe um a fear that you're going to die during that process a fear that your baby's going to die during that process a loss of control like that's the biggest um category that comes up when we look at qualitative research on that um but there's also obstetric violence and you know, women can experience all of these things plus obstetric violence or just obstetric violence on their own. So obstetric violence fits underneath that birth trauma um, umbrella, but it's a very pervasive form because it's, you know, this is about the mistreatment of women. Um, but it doesn't mean that you have to experience that to experience birth trauma, because you could be there could be lots of different things under that umbrella, and I've only mentioned a few of them. So it's really is whatever the woman says it is. You know, we, we have that wonderful um quote from from um Beck in the UK and her work is amazing. And, you know, she she wrote the beautiful paper that was uh, saying that birth trauma is in the eye of the beholder. So it's basically, it's whatever the woman says it is. And if she feels that she had a traumatic experience and maybe it doesn't even, it's not included in, under the umbrella. Well, you know what? That just means you've got to put it under it. You know, it's what the woman says it is. It's never, never for us as birth workers or as a midwife or as a doctor to turn around and say, oh, you had a traumatic birthing experience um, because, that might well be true, but so might a, a birth that we read on paper as being, you know, an ideal, you know, she turned up fully dilated and had a baby and it was a vaginal birth and everything looked great on paper. But for the woman, um, that was a traumatic experience for whatever reason. So mm-hmm. it is absolutely what the woman feels. Yeah. Mm. I think it's really important to acknowledge that if anyone is listening, that if you felt that you did experience trauma, then that's real and that's real for you and not to downplay that or feel like because your birth went a certain way that it you didn't feel trauma or just because you you have a healthy baby that you should be so grateful and that 
that's all that matters and your feelings don't matter. And I think we've spoken about this in numerous That's a times. massive myth, that healthy baby. Mm. You know, as long, yeah. and this is what women hear time and time again. And I see this, you know, ha- so many comments about this throughout the survey and the birth experience survey was, well, I was told I had a healthy baby, therefore everything else is okay. And that's not okay. You may have a healthy baby, but if you don't have a healthy mum, then who's going to care for that baby? Absolutely. And you know, being a mother is such an important, vital role in society. It's one that we we don't see as as important as it is, um, but it's so important. And if we don't, what we need is strong, confident, and empowered women before birth, but also after birth. Birth should not be a form of dehumanizing, of violating, of disempowering. That's not what birth should be around. And that should not be the normal narrative that, you know, well, you leave your dignity at the door and as long as you've got a healthy baby, everything's okay. That's not okay. That's not okay. And I think, you know, I've in midwifery, I've worked in all different areas and I've been a home birth, I was a home birth midwife for many years as well. And well, you know, if that did anything, that showed me that birth doesn't actually have to look like that. Birth can be empowering. Birth can be healing. Women can cope with it. Women can be can be supported through the most challenging time that they go through and come out of it feeling amazing. And that's that's what we should be striving for, not saying that's an exception to the rule. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? I think, yeah, everything you're saying, I'm like, yes. <laughs> I think for me, often I'm the person that will go and be with that mum, you know, a month after everybody's kind of gone. And that's when, if they've had that trauma, they've started to really sit into it. And that's when they start to tell me what's happened to them. Or it's the partners reached out and said, you know, my partner is not coping. Um, you know, everybody's gone now what what do we do because she's you know really low mood and just really sad or i'll get the woman on the other side who's arriving into the second or third pregnancy after trauma who hasn't been unpacked and the fear is like watching a like a bunny in headlights you know i'm pregnant again oh my god i'm so scared i don't know what to do i I don't even know where to start i can't go back to that hospital i definitely don't want to have the same experience again where do i start and yeah. my heart just breaks because I was there, you know, 100% being there. Yeah. And it's a very confusing time because you are, you do have this new being that you've been hoping for, you know, for such a long time. And it's it, it's confusing. Like it's hard anyway because, you know, you're, you're, you're up at all times, you know, you're not sleeping. Um, and often those signs that there's some real mental health challenges are hidden because what you know did you sleep well of course I didn't sleep I was up breastfeeding all night but then maybe there were times when the baby was sleeping and you were going over and over in your head what happened and you're getting those flashbacks um so it's a very confusing time for women and a very challenging time and I think it's it's I think sometimes women don't realize they've got it either even you know going into the new birth into the next birth uh, and then they're offered often, uh, especially if it was a cesarean for the first, they're often the panace- offered a panacea of, we'll have an elective cesarean and you won't go through that problem again. And I think there's so many women that take that option, but the trauma is still there. And it's and it just it just has another layer at this point because then they were never given the option. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that realisation comes back after two cesareans after three cesareans and then they're like oh my god I wish I'd just been given that first option because right that's not to say that every woman who chooses a cesarean after um a previous cesarean feels like that but I think there's a lot of women that do and it's just it's from a psychological point of view it's not helping really because you're not actually unpacking what happened last time and helping a woman reach growth through that trauma it's like okay we'll just put a band-aid on it because it doesn't, birth doesn't matter. So, you know, at least you don't have to go through that horrible labor again and just have this elective cesarean. But certainly from women that I've that I've researched and I've, you know, and I've spoken to, it it's not a quick fix band-aid at all because it's major surgery and that allows, you know, even that comes with its own flashbacks, even if it's not an emergency, but it's an elective. So yeah, that unpacking of it is really important. We've actually got 
I'm working with a medical student at the moment on the birth experience study and her project is looking at the debriefing data. So we asked women about debriefing and uh, we asked them, um, we got some yes, no questions, but we also asked them an open text question and she's going through that data at the moment. And oh my God, it's just so amazing. And I keep saying to her, we need to drill down to why it was good and why it was bad. Not just say it was good or it was bad. Like I want to know like what made it good and what made it bad. And so we have these conversations together and she just digs down and, you know, some of the um, comments, I wish I could remember the one that we read yesterday because it was so descriptive on the fact that it was, you know, that this was a bad example of it. And she was trying to just get answers and clarifications. And the healthcare provider was, what is it? She said something like covering himself in the blanket of excuses. And that was so visual, you know, it was a real defensive practice. We're just not very good at reaching women where they are at and then helping them through that. Although, Nicola, it sounds like something that you do a lot of. <laughs> yeah, and I, I do. And I think that's really important. I think what one question I do have for this is, is, is there a lack of training with, um, you know, caregivers on how to even approach, you know, approach this subject? Because I think I obviously know since COVID, there's been obviously a lot, lot less caregivers in practices now. But do you think that that training is a little bit, and you know, I don't know, just not there, lacking? Look, I think there's a couple of things. I think yes, the training is certainly part of it. And you know, when I came out of my VBAC, I looked back at my midwifery training, and I thought I really didn't know anything about VBAC, and um, and then started learning by doing. Well, first of all, doing by having my own, but then also like reading and learning and and then supporting women going through that journey. So I think yes, there is a lack of training and a lack of belief in the in the importance of it, um, which is why it's so important to hear women's stories on why it was important to them. But I think there's also, you know, the the model of care that's important. So you know, you can have an amazing um, relationship based model of care. And that's more common with a with a midwife. And she provides amazing support for women. She hasn't done any extra training in it to need to be able to do that. She just knows that it's how you deal with, it's how you relate to women and how you support them and how you care for them to be able to do that. But I did, you know, once my book came out last September, I was, and I was going, you know, traveling around and it was, it was a great time actually up in Brisbane and traveling around and talking about my book. I actually was getting, you know, clinicians and doulas, and birth workers come up to me and say, I want to learn more about this, which is why I actually developed those workshops was to to do to give to give some extra knowledge. But then mainly like, there's a lot of storytelling. Not There's my stories, but there's a lot of storytelling from the audience. And it's I think that by the end of the day, it's more permission. OK, look, we've talked about the stats like get over that. You figured that out. We've done that. We I talk about Ellie, the elephant that comes in the room. We talk and we deal with Ellie the elephant and she's the elephant in the room, which is uterine rupture. Then we pat her, we learn all about her and then we send her on her way and then we get on with the business of supporting women. And, you know, by the end of the day, I just feel like I've kind of given them permission to go and be awesome and go and support women. So, um, yeah, I think the training does help, um, but it's usually more of a confidence boost and being aware of how to fight for women um, and then going and doing that. Mm. So um, as a researcher, what are your recommendations for women considering VBAC and seeking to minimise their risk of birth trauma? Um, well, that's really the premise of why I wrote the book because, you know, it, it was giving back to women that knowledge that I had learned from them. You know, as researchers, I feel like sometimes we're a bit of a thief. Like we we get all this information from women, we ask them to bear their souls in interviews and um, you know, I had all these videos and recordings from women about their experiences and then they did this survey. They share so much, like they rip open their wounds and bleed into their words. And then we go, well, thank you very much. I'll publish a paper on that. I'll get a PhD. I'll be called a doctor and I'll be on my way. Thank you very much. I've got a beautiful academic career ahead of me. And it's a little bit selfish because not everyone will read our academic papers. Um, I mean, I tried my hardest to make sure they're in open access journals. And I think pretty much all bar maybe one or two of my papers are in open access so everyone can read them. But then that's needing people to, first of all, know how to find them and then be able to know how to re read them. Although I did have a journalist recently say to me, she interviewed me on the um, obstetric violence paper. And she said to me, well, thank you so much for writing a paper that's really easy to understand. And I thought, 
probably just because I don't have very fancy terminologies myself. <laughs> I write it at quite a basic level, but I'll take that on as a good thing. <laughs> um, so, you know, if we don't, if we know that a lot of women are not going to be able to access the papers and read this stuff, and it's all, you know, it's all very specific to certain things that you're writing about in the paper, I thought, well, I need to give back. You know, if I'm going to be a feminist researcher, then I need to give back. And that means giving back to women, which is why, really why I wrote the book. So I could give back and say, you guys gave me so much. Now let's pay it forward with all the stuff that you shared with me. Let's pay it forward and help women in the future. And so then my advice is about the four factors that I wrote about in the book, which is having control, having confidence, having a relationship and having active labor. And uh, and I'm happy to, to touch on them because if you have if you feel good as or you feel high in all of those four areas or four factors then you will feel much better in your next birth after cesarean regardless of whether that was a vaginal birth or whether it was a um, cesarean planned or unplanned if you have done everything that you can and that you have um, achieved in those four factors then you will feel much better and the opposite is if you felt low across those four factors you're likely to to not feel quite as great and you have some elements of control in those areas and some that you don't but you need to recognize that and that's certainly what I've um, approached in the book I mean the control chapter starts with like a whole history of feminism and um, maternity and the impact of feminism on maternity and basically why we're where we are right now so whenever a woman looks back and go with my first birth, I wish I had just done this. I wish I had spoken up. For me, it was, I wish I had walked out the moment that she'd done the CTG, the, the ultrasound and said, you're dilating Hazel and he's a frank breach and his feet are up by his ears and he's tiny. He'd make for a, a perfect vaginal breach birth. Let's go for cesarean, you know? And I think, what if I had turned around at that point and told them to, you know, if I'd sworn at them and then just walked out, but then what would I have walked out to? I didn't have any healthcare provider that was going to support me. And there was no hospitals in that, in even the whole Sydney area that were doing for supporting vaginal breech birth back in 2007. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, I wrote that whole section for women to kind of go, oh, right, this is where I am in the system. And that's why it would have been very difficult for me. I actually can't blame myself, but there are things that you can then do to make it better for you. And that's what I look at. So, yeah, my advice would be, well, first of all, grab the book and then go through it step by step. And there's lots of activities in it, but it is around those four factors that I think make a really big impact. Mm. Can women who are pregnant with their first baby read the book? It's oh, not just- God, yeah. Like, I think it's, I mean, it's certainly, um, it goes, it's written as a journey. So, mm. you know, the first, the first bit's all about me. <laughs> and then, the, then only just to share my story and be transparent and feedback I've got from women is that they've actually really enjoyed that part. So that's fine. And then I do actually start, I start with birth trauma. So if you're planning your first birth, it might be like, oh, I might skip that chapter because <laughs> you're not, you, you haven't had that. Um, but I start with that because, you know, there is this journey when you've had a previous cesarean. Um, and I write about it in one of my first papers, which was um, when I looked at all the evidence that was out there on women's experiences of, of planning a VBAC. And it was this journey from pain to power. And that, you know, that was what I called the, the title of the paper. And that really was, there was this journey, there was the pain, there was the power, and then this journey went up and down. And that was the diagram that I did. And so the, the pain, it's there, you know, two thirds of women with a cesarean experience that was traumatic. So I have to look at birth trauma first. Then I go into um, the facts and figures. So I look at all the evidence and the research again, that's mainly around um, previous having previous cesarean and how that impacts you um, and then I go into those four factors so certainly those four factors and then all the beautiful inspiring 15 stories of women who had empowering births they may have been v-backs but if it's still your first birth then that's that's going to be empowering um to read so yeah that, that journey can still be there a lot of the activities that I have in the book so there's a whole activity in the control chapter where you draw your births out um, that you wish for that I do that I used to do that um, with first time and all clients that I worked with and I used to even do that for for a while doing education classes uh, so yeah there they, they can be that can be really useful information for whatever types of birth you've had if you've had none or if you've had a few and they've been vaginal or if you've had cesareans okay 
Beautiful. So your re- did, did your research explore the role of healthcare providers in supporting women during VBAC attempts? Um, you know, what are some ways medical professionals can positively impact the birth experience and reduce help reduce trauma? Gosh, they make all the difference. Yeah. If you are, the, the analogy that I use is, um, and I think, you know, we, we're watching this right now with the Women's World Cup and, you know, we, we I wrote the book during the last Olympics. And so, you know, I was taking time off to write my book and I was like, stealing away to watch the Olympics and the Paralympics, which is all my favourite. And I remember there was this, um, it turned into a meme in the end, was there was this swimmer and I don't even remember who was racing in the swimming race, but the camera turned to the coach and there was the coach in the audience going like this, like fists up and like looked at like the most supportive person ever. And they didn't know who that he was the coach for, but everyone's kind of saying, that's the coach that I want, you know, because this coach was just so ecstatic that the person that they had been training was in their race in the Olympics. It wouldn't matter if they came first or last, you would be like, I'm just so glad I had this person on my team. Like, and it made me think, you know, I was writing the book at the time and I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's the kind of person I want on my team, right? Because women having a baby, we we might do that a few times in our life, right? We might not, we don't often have large families, some women do, but we might only be doing that a few times in our life. Same as an Olympian. An Olympian is doing that really only a few times in their life. Mm-hmm. And how much money and support is given to Olympians to be able to achieve that? And yet women are doing this a few times in their life, but in, and they remember that for the rest of their life and it impacts everything about them from that moment onwards. And so I thought, well, well, what kind of team would a woman need if she was planning the best birth for her? Like, would she, imagine she's at this interview and she's an Olympian and she's been told, this is fantastic. You've got into the 100 metre sprint. You know, you're going to represent Australia or the UK, right? I'm from the UK region. Um, But you're representing Australia. You're going to wear the green and gold. Like, this is amazing unfortunately your coach that you love so much has just retired so you've got to interview for a new one so we've lined you up with two go and have a chat with them and then decide the one that you want and you go and speak to the first one and the first one says oh well you could but just looking at you I don't think your feet are the right size and I think your pelvis is a little bit misshapen and you know I don't even think your mouth is right. Like, I don't know, something about you. I don't think you're going to be able to achieve it. And you're most likely going to die at 50 metres. So I think it would be much safer. Like, don't worry about it. Just watch it on the telly. Like, it's not important. You know, it's the race doesn't matter. It's how you live the rest of your life that really matters. You know, you'd be thinking, okay, well, he's a bit of a jerk. So then you go and meet the next person and this person's like, I can see you winning already. I can see you achieving exactly what you want. And whether that's first, second or third, or whether that's achieving your personal best, I can see you doing that. And I completely believe in your ability to do that. And my role will be to support you every step of the way. And I've got a great team that I can also refer to. I've got a great nutritionist. I've got a great physio. And I've got the person that's going to help you with the best shoes ever. And we are here as your team to support you. And I will be there shouting so hard at the beginning and at the end. And I am so proud of anything that you achieve, but I'll be there. Like, who are you going to go with? And it seems a little bit extreme, but that's what women are having to it's deal with. It's so every true. Day. It's like, it's like that's ringing in my ears because I remember when I was going back in, um, having had a miscarriage and then pregnant again, and they went, oh, 40. Yeah. And I remember having this, like having to like literally advocate for myself. I said, I'm the healthiest, the fittest. I feel like I completely do this. I work with pregnant women. Like I had all, I felt like all my things stacked in a row, ready to go. And she was like, you know, I just would do the C-section. It's going to be so much better. You can get your hair done in the morning. And I'm like, I don't care about my hair. I don't care about my age. And yeah, I remember she saw me after I'd had another emergency C-section with my my baby. And she said, see, should have just planned it like we said. And I wanted to smack her. <laughs> I just yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And in 
being a home birth midwife, and certainly this is what I saw in my home birth research as well, was that often women who um, were planning a VBAC, home birth wasn't there on their first list, right? They they were going to the hospital, and this is women who have been through that cascade, like they got in that raft and they have ridden that cascade of intervention and the raft blew at the end. And they know what it was like and they've had that trauma. And so they'd go back to the hospital and say, well, look, I don't want to be induced or I don't want to have that cannula. It really helped. It meant I couldn't hold on to things properly. And I don't want to be on the CTG because I want to be upright and mobile this time. I know that will help me have a vaginal birth. And then their reaction would be like that. It would be, oh, no. Well, the thing is, the policy says you have to. So that's what you have to do. And there was no room for negotiation. Even though they're saying it's really, really risky and scary, so you must do it in a hospital, but we're not willing to negotiate with you. And women would end up feeling like they've been pushed into a corner and it was either the hospital, the highway, or where else do you go? But in this day of digital age, there are other places to go. And you could just go straight onto your search engine, Google, and just type in home birth or supportive professions or who, who knows what search terms they use. And then they would find a midwife in their area, a private midwife, and they'd get on the phone. And that was often meeting that second coach. And they'd say, I believe in you. I believe you can do this. And yeah, I'll support you. I'll support you whether we end up at home or whether we end up in the hospital. I'll be there and I'll be part of your team. And then they might say, and by the way, have you thought of looking for a doula as well? Because you want to have the best team around and doulas are fantastic. And then they might get on the phone to a doula and then they've got the second coach who's like, yeah, I'm so for this. Like, let's do this. And then they might go into a more alternative, you know, birth class and then they get that support. So it's, it, I've seen the difference and I've seen the difference it can make. And so I know it's out there, but certainly in the research, you know, I found that as well. So that team is really important. And we often think, you know, well, I'll just do what, you know, the doctor says. And there are times when there were complexities. And I'm very, very grateful that we have such skilled and wonderful obstetric team across Australia, because it means when I have transferred in or when I've needed things happen, um, that, you know, that our medical professionals are there to support and do the best surgeries that they can do or intervention that they can do. But the issue we've got is that that's often given across all women, even if they don't even have any challenges, no challenges that mean that they need that kind of level of support. What they need is, is to have a team that supports them in their philosophy, which is if you're planning a vaginal birth after cesarean, take out the after cesarean, you're just planning a vaginal birth. Well, not just, it's huge. You're planning a vaginal birth. So you need to have people on your team who have the same philosophy as you. And that's where I think midwifery and doulas are really important because we do come from that philosophy, that pregnancy, labor and birth and the postnatal period is an extremely important time, but it's actually a normal life event. And most women are extremely fit and healthy regardless of age. <laughs> and they, they need our support to guide them and to coach them through that experience and for a small proportion of women they need extra support and midwives are trained to pick that up and refer on and then still collaborate with the medical team when that need when that's needed has there been any research around fears that medical providers have and maybe why they don't feel safe themselves maybe supporting women in what they want because of their own fears due to what the system has done to them or their own experiences or anything like that because um we've got to kind of realize in our culture in our western culture um you know the medical industry is put up on on a big pillar like you said do as the doctor says and i think there is uh more fear around them not doing something than actually doing something but not having the outcome that the woman wants because it if they're seen to have at least done something because they feel that that was in the best interest of mother and baby then they have done that job in you have a having a live baby and we intervened because in a moment we didn't feel it was safe for you to continue on your journey and the preferences you want so that's why we intervened would you say that that's a big part of 
Like there's a massive fear within the system, which is not trusting women in what they want to support them, what they want. But there's a huge fear in litigation, in, in you know, an outcome that's not going to be nice. Um, and so then that's what they project onto, onto women, which then brings that control of women. Is this yeah, making absolutely. sense? No, absolutely. Uh, there's a few different things that, that come out of that. One, you know, legislation does have an issue. And certainly we've seen with the rise of legislation is the rise of medicalization and more intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that want of trying to do something and needing to fix something. And when we look at medicine, um, and you know, I came from a nursing background as well, so I, I, you know, I really get this, is that you are fixing things that are broken. You know, people come in because they've had an accident. I was an emo- my first job was an emergency nurse. So, you know, we saw, I saw everything in the middle of London. Uh, people would come in and your job there is to alleviate pain or to help them and to fix things. And you'd work with your medical team to try and fix those things. And that might be that they've got to go to f- have, a, have an operation or have certain treatment or medications to help them. So, you know, it, it's an illness paradigm, we call that. There's something wrong with them. We need to fix it. And, you know, we, the advances that have been made, you know, in the last 40 years are amazing in how we now fix things and how people can live much longer with life, which used to be life-limiting illnesses, they're now not, which is fantastic, right? Especially when that's your person that you love um, and they can stay around for longer. So that is amazing. But um, ultimately, they're then using that same illness paradigm, that same we must fix everything and intervene on top of something that actually hasn't changed the way that women birth my granny used to say to me before she passed away she'd say do women still birth the same way and I was like yep they feel birth and she used to say that to make me think you know because she'd then hear me talk about other things that are happening and she'd be like yeah but Hazel do women still birth the same way well unfortunately to my granny up there yes but less so now right because there are less women having spontaneous vaginal births now than there ever have been and what have we done i think what we've done is superimpose that illness paradigm that medicalization on top of what is a normal life event that should really be outside of hospitals and in the community and then going into hospital if there are challenges i don't like to use the term risk but if there are challenges then we need to go into that point but really there should be something that is not in an illness paradigm or even an illness building, but into um, the community domain. And actually we did see this in COVID because um, women noticed this. Women were going, hang on a minute, over at that hospital is COVID and the most sick people with COVID. And I'm gonna have a baby. I don't wanna do it there where I'm not allowed my partner and my doula and all these people. And so suddenly home birth rates you know, did increase and, and the, the amount of women looking for home birth and maybe not even getting access because it was flat chat um, increased because they could see finally that that's actually an area for sick people and there's nothing sick about me. So we have that, we have the defensive practice because who does want to be involved in something where something goes wrong and, you know, babies are these beautiful, cuddly, wonderful future, you know, the, the, the hope and the love and the future. And when babies don't survive, that's very, very hard. And obviously that's the most hardest for the woman and her family. But there is then the fear that if I did something wrong or if I didn't act quick enough, then I'm going to get into trouble. Now, even with all the medical advances that we have, people's babies do still die. And sometimes that is because people haven't stepped in and haven't maybe listened to the midwife who said, I think there's a real problem here, or the woman that's saying, I think there's a problem. And then the midwife saying, I agree, I think there's a problem. And then someone saying, I don't think there's a problem because look, that CTG looks fine. And then the baby doesn't survive. So there obviously are still those examples that happen. And actually all of our superimposing of this onto this and all of the medicalization hasn't really changed that. What it has resulted in is more women being induced, more women having interventions, more women having um, cesareans and more women being traumatized. So how do we change that? As in you were saying, like what, what's going on in, in, in the medical establishment and midwifery as well? That's tricky. And I did look at this in a paper that I wrote from, it was called From Coercive, Coercion to Respectful Return to Care. And I looked at all the comments that were made about interactions with healthcare providers in my VBAC survey. 
And there was this range from coercion, which was your baby will die if you don't do this. Um, and more than 50% of women experience those kind of comments in the survey, all the way up to respectful maternity care, you know, that wonderful coach feeling amazing and supported and empowered and, and um, amazed, amazing after your birthing experience. And that range, um, when, I just, when I looked at it in the discussion, I wanted to know well, why do people, why do they say those things? Why do they use coercive control to try and get women to make those decisions? And I think there's a few things that, 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 that I looked at, I looked for the research for, and one of them was that unconscious bias. So the fear that you don't want, you're worried about a VBAC, or maybe you've seen, you try and rupture and you're worried that you don't want that to happen. Or maybe your boss is saying, you know, I don't think this, you know, I don't think we should be doing this, but also they're para- they're they're coming from that paradigm of women are sick, women are broken, um, and you often hear that in defence. You often hear um, a defensive action from obsession saying, "Well, women are getting older and fatter, and they're more sick," and putting the blame on women rather than than looking at their own practices or looking at their own systems. So that unconscious bias when a woman says. I want to do this, like I'm 40 and I want to plan a VBAC, then they're straight away, the unconscious bias is so quick, you don't even know that it's happening at times, can come out with, oh, I don't think you should be doing that. You know, you could end up with a dead baby. How would you feel if you had a dead baby? And then once they start that comment, it's almost as if like they can't stop. (laughs) And then just more and more and more comes out. And what are you, as a woman, what are you meant to do with that? Like you, you are being coerced to make a decision. And if the woman then turns around and says, all right, I agree. I'll have an elective cesarean. I agree. It's too dangerous. Of course, I don't want to have a dead baby. Like this baby is so wanted and I'm I'm older. This might be the last baby that I have. Like I may have had IVF for years and, you know, I've finally got this baby. Of course, I'll, I'll, I'll go with what you say. And great for that guy. Great for that woman or, or man who's been the healthcare provider. Well done. I'll shake your hand. You managed to use coercive control and you got the woman to decide. Off you go on your day and go and use it with another 10 or 20 women um, and get more women uh, use coercive control. And it worked, right? It worked. Women decided this, so I'm going to keep using that tactic because it worked. What about that woman? She then goes home and she then is re-traumatized during her theater experience or after she just feels like, you know what? I had that taken away from me and as women we are so used to just having that taken away from us all the time and having and paying the price with our body because it's our body that then goes through that Mm. and that then lives in our body and that lives in our trauma but we would sacrifice ourselves for our babies and that's what the also I think there is a culture Mm -hmm. around like and we would do that we would do that like we would sacrifice our own wants needs desires our own bodies for our babies and the fact that that is the card that they pull so often because they know that that's what we will do it's i just i mean we nicola and i support you know hundreds of women every year and i even sometimes see uh you know a woman who is like going for a v-back she's chosen an individual private caregiver they've said they're fully supportive of do it, you know, in the VBAC, but it's, but then they do this bait and switch right at the end. And then it's like, oh, this baby's, this baby's on the, on the bigger side. And I'm like, but what is bigger? Like how, what does that matter? And then it just, then the, it's like they've nurtured and then right at the end gone, look, but I won't allow you to go before. I'll support you, but I won't allow you to go over 40 weeks. And it's so hard to, when you recognize it as their supporter and coach, to be able to call that out. <laughs> um, yeah. oh, sorry, just and that's you- a delicate balance to do as well, because if they've got trust and respect for that healthcare provider, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, there is the white coat syndrome as well. You know, we know this is a patriarchal system and there are things that we're doing to try and change that, such as continuity care with a mid- midwife does actually disrupt that patriarchal system. Um, but in the standard care, you know, the people are higher. You know, we looked at people who are higher because they have more power and that means they've got more influence over us. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, I, I can think of situations where, you know, I've been a midwife working in a birthing unit and, and, you know, working with a woman and everything's kind of looking really, really great. And then she just shares something that I'm like, oh, okay, that's the crux. Let's deal with that. Now we've got through that. 
things are going to keep on moving. But it didn't reach it. It reached a time frame, right? So you've got like what's it, one hour or something uh, for a primate in the back then um, to for for a woman having a first baby to push her baby out. You're like it went one minute over and in storms an obstetrician saying, um, uh, "We've got to get this baby out right now." It took an hour to get to the point of figuring out why it was holding back, right? <laughs> and I could see the head. Um, and, you know, we're on the floor. It's all working. But as soon as the woman saw the doctor, she was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And everything just stopped, except she was able to get up and get onto the bed and get and was put into stirrups and then had a vacuum. And it was all so unnecessary. But I was in shock. I couldn't change anything. And, you know, because of that hierarchy as well, that person had gone over me and the, and the woman had gone, oh, that's a doctor. I've got to do what they say. So it's, it is a real challenge. And that's where continuity of care is really important. So that type of the, the, the model of care has a big impact. And actually reminds me, you asked me a question. I don't actually think I completely answered it because I went on a tangent, but you said about the impact of model of care on women and planning a VBAC. And ultimately in my survey, I looked at that and I looked at women who had continuity of care with a midwife, continuity of care with a doctor, which is generally um, private obstetric care or public standard care, which is seeing a different person every single time. Continuity of care with a midwife also included MGP, which is midwifery group practice in a public hospital and private um, midwifery care. They were grouped together. And I then compared it against, against those four factors that I mentioned earlier. And what I found is that women who had continuity of care with a midwife felt more in control um, had less disrespectful care, um, felt more confident in themselves and in their healthcare providers' belief in them to have it. You know, that does my coach actually believe that I can make it? That kind of fact. So I asked about that. Um, so they had higher rates of that. They had um, higher rates of um, upright and active labor and birth and water birth. And um, they had um, better a better standard of care with that healthcare provider. So they had higher decision-making um, scores. So I had some validated tools in there that looked at decision-making and respect. So I had higher decision-making scores and higher respect scores, which means they received more respect from the healthcare provider. And that was with continuity of care with a midwife. So, you know, I wrote a whole paper on that um, and I put all that in the book as well, because, you know, that to me, We've got less research really out there on whether or not models of care impact VBAC rates, but VBAC rates is only one part of the picture. And certainly, I think when I went into my PhD, it was all about the vagina and pushing baby out of your vagina is all that matters. Coming out of it and then certainly being um, a researcher on birth trauma and obstetric violence, I can see where, you know, what happens to the woman who plans a VBAC has a vaginal birth, but has experienced severe obstetric violence during that time and actually had re-disempowered um, and wasn't given her options or her choices and was low on all those four factors and still had a vaginal birth. Well, then where do you go and how do you, which group do you belong to then? Um, and can you really say, yeah, I had that successful VBAC when you're being traumatized? So I think when we focus purely on VBAC rates alone, we are not putting at the forefront the woman's experience. And if we're using a trauma-informed care lens, then we've got to put that first. And if we work on all those four factors, seriously, if we work on one of them, which is active labor, we will see our VBAC rates rise. But if we don't, if we only put the focus on that rather than on women's experiences, then we're focusing on the wrong thing. And what we need is how can we support women to feel in control, feel confident, have an active labor and have um, a good relationship with a healthcare provider. How can we increase those factors? If we increase those factors, we'll see others, others increase. Mm. That's so, interesting, isn't it? Just seeing the future of what maternity, maternity care looks like from the research that you've done. I mean, like what would, what was your thought process on your vision for what maternity care looks like with your research? Well, my vision is that every woman receives respectful maternity care. Mm. Now, if I look at the research, then the way that I think we need to do that is that every woman in Australia has access to continuity of care with a midwife throughout the whole process, including labour and birth. And I have my concerns for those continuity of care models that are not offering labour and birth services. So you know, continuity of care all the way throughout in wherever they are, 
And that includes for our First Nations sisters to be able to birth on their own country, on their own terms, on how birth needs to look for them and still having midwives to support them in those locations. We know, and I train midwives, I'm a, you know, I'm an I'm a educator in the Bachelor of Midwifery and in the Graduate Diploma of Midwifery. And I know for a fact that our midwives learn a lot about the normal, but they also learn how to pick the complex and what the complexity means and how to pick that up and how to refer on as needed. And so for the majority of women, you know, having constant care with a midwife is all they will need. For some women, they will need continuity of care with the midwife and the input of our obstetric colleagues. That doesn't mean, though, that the midwife shouldn't be involved at that point. In fact, I think that's where midwifery continuity care is even more important. So they're not just getting pushed from pillar to post and they still have someone who can almost be the case manager or the project manager of that entire um, tricky situation that then happens at that point. So, yeah, my dream would be that every woman can have continuity of care with a midwife. And then on top of that, once they've got that contract care with the midwife, they can choose where they want to birth. So if birthing at home is their choice, then that should be supported. If birthing in a birthing center because home isn't a safe space or a practical space or just not a space that they feel comfortable in, and they can have a option to an out-of-hospital birthing center. And if women choose to birth in the hospital or their complexities mean that they need to birth in the hospital or that they need highly encouraged to birth in the hospital because they need to have access to more complex um, support, then that's an option as well. I think number one, constant care with a midwife. Number two, having a choice of birth places. Mm. I love that. And as a fellow POM, <laughs> tell me what you think. Do you Have you looked at what the research is in the UK compared to here? Because when I used to support pregnant women in the UK, home births were still a really big thing. Like I used to see lots of women at home after they'd had their babies. Um, but I don't know what it's like now. I've been gone too long. But um, what's, your, what's your thought process from here to the UK? My heart goes out to the midwives in the UK at the moment because they are doing it tough. They midwives are. are doing it tough everywhere, but they are doing it tough in the UK. I was actually back there in April and, and I was speaking at conferences. I, I did one of these, did one of my workshops in London um, and I spoke to midwives, I spoke to midwives who have worked in all models of care. Gosh, one of them was my bridesmaid who lives over there now. And to hear from midwives say to me, they are worried that midwifery won't exist in the UK in the next 10 years, broke my heart. Now it will. I'm saying this right now, it will. We are the oldest profession alongside prostitutes. Now, and we're often needed by prostitutes, right? <laughs> because we're midwives. We are the oldest profession. We are mentioned in ancient scripts, in the Old Testament, in the Quran. We are there. We've always been bending rules, and fighting, um, I, mean, I love. I love the story. I'm not. I'm not a religious person, but I do love the story of Shifra, Shifra and Pura in the Old Testament. These mis, these midwives were. I think they were Israelites, and they were asked by the Pharaoh, "You know what? There are too many of your kind. I want you to kill off those babies when they are being born. Your midwives, you can do that." So they went away, and then I can just imagine the conversation. They'd be like, "Oh my God, I'm not doing that, right? Like, oh my God, like how? What the hell? This, what is this Pharaoh think we're going to do? There's no way I'm going to be killing babies, like." My job is to support women to grow healthy, strong babies and women. And so then when they went back, and who knows what happened in between, I love to imagine that part. They then go back to the fair and they went, you know what? It didn't happen because those women are so strong and so quick. They all had their babies before we got there. So by the time we got there, it was kind of like too late. <laughs> you know, that is a that was midwives coming up together and going, all right, what excuse can we use? And they were most likely there at those births and saying, you've got to tell no one that I was there. Don't tell anyone that I'm here. And they would have worked with the community. And then there's like a, you know, a, a sentence or so afterwards that then says that these midwives had very, very rich lives afterwards. And I'm sure that wouldn't have been money, but they would never have been out of food and they would never have been out of shelter. And so rich as in rich in their community. And so we have been there from the very beginning of time and we will be there till the end of time. As long as women are birthing babies and birthing people are birthing babies, then we will be there. But they are doing it tough. And, you know, there's been a series of, in, of, of inquiries that haven't looked good, both for midwifery and from the medical establishment. And when you dig deep into what's been going on, from what I can tell, and I'm not over there, so I'm not an expert in this field, 
that there is there's this battle that's kind of been going on and it is that battle of paradigms it's that wellness paradigm well not the wellness but it's the women are well and the midwifery normal birth paradigm compared to this medical paradigm and what's been missing in the middle is good communication and good referral when there's needed and good you know if you don't have if you have a battle here and there's not good communication in the middle then that filters down to bad care for women and for their babies and so it's not as if we need to get rid of midwifery absolutely not and for those um small very small numbers of campaigners that want to do that but they have a very loud voice that's not what we should be doing what we should be doing is looking at how do we improve that communication how do we have that improve that respect and how do we actually listen to women's voices and what they really want now my paper the fingers crossed hopefully will be will be coming out in the next few months um is uh we asked women in the survey if you were to have another pregnancy what would you do differently i thought it was a pretty boring question to be honest i thought oh we're not going to get much out of this i don't even remember which one of our consumer organizations because co-designed survey came up with it but it was in there that question was the largest answered question with over six and a half thousand comments on what they would do better next time and it was one of the one of the first ones we looked at. Like I said, we've got a paper; it's under the under review at the moment. And uh, you know, we, it took a while to to get all that analysis done. And we can see from that exactly what women want. And women don't want midwives to disappear. Women don't want that profession to disappear. They want midwives right up at the top, and they want choice, and they want respect, and they want options. And so I can't wait for that paper to come out because how can you, how can you discredit six and a half thousand voices who answered that question? So I guess your answer about, about the UK, you know, like I, I, I tell, I, I say to midwives in the UK, you just hold on and keep doing what you're doing, which is supporting women. Because the small minority who say that you shouldn't be there and the small minority of when it didn't go right They've got a lot of voices, but they will die down. And what really we need to tap into is what women are asking for. They want midwifery continuity of care, and you're not doing it in the way that it should be done. You need those continuity of care models back out there, back in the community, highlight when it's going right, and listen to women's voices. They want you, and they need you, and they deserve respectful maternity care, and you are the best at getting it. Oh, I love that. I, I mean, I'm really sad, but... I love that the voice of what you've said there, because, you know, women, the midwives in the UK were some of the best that I've ever worked with and just amazing humans. So, mm. yeah. Wow. We could <sighs> talk, talk for hours. For hours. <laughs> I mean, there is still so many questions, but I know our time is kind of limited, but um, look, I mean, if you want to learn more, from Hazel, come to one of the Hazel's workshops. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be hosting one on the Gold Coast in Rabina on the 28th of um, October. It's a full day workshop. Hazel, can you maybe just do a brief overview of what you're going to cover and what um, clinicians, midwives, doctors, birth workers, educators are going to come out with from, from doing the workshop? Absolutely. So this workshop is obviously like for, for clinicians and birth workers and doulas and, and students as well. Um, and the reason I'm focusing on that and not focusing on women, I just don't have the time, first of all, to be doing workshops for women. But I actually want those seeds that I plant to go out and then care for women. So I've got people who've done my workshops who've then created VPAC ed education sessions for women. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what I want. Right. So you use the information in the book, use the information that I pass on, and then it impacts your practice. And I get to hear that. I got to hear um, a beautiful message from a midwife who did the did a workshop down in Wollongong. And the next day she was on a night shift and a woman planning a VBAC came in and they had this whole conversation about she had a conversation with her other midwives and the doctor about the stuff that she'd learned in the workshop. And with that in her head, she was so passionate to support this woman. And this woman had this amazing birthing experience. And the midwife felt so much more confident to support her. And she, you know, she she managed to, to really put that confidence into caring for the woman all the way through to actually VBAC education 
online classes being developed mm-hmm. across Australia. So what you will get is how to use the book with education to women. We will we will dive deep into what the research, not just mine, but the research out there says about things like uterine rupture and you know factors that contribute to um, VBAC and, and repeat cesarean. We'll dive deep into birth trauma and the impact it has for women. And then I use the four factors as the framework and we'll dive deep into each one of those four factors. And that's where it's separate from the book because I then take those um, take those four factors, but from a supporting women point of view. And so that's where it's, you know, that's where it separates a little bit from the book. Um, but we also share a lot and we have a lot of laughs. I'm exhausted by the end of the day because we laugh so much. We talk so much. We share so much. I share stuff about my life and my experiences supporting women. And I give complete and absolute acknowledgement to the experience in the room and hear their stories as well. And so we have people who are I've had people who are starting out as a doula, like they've never had their first client yet. They're just super, super keen. Just student midwives um, who are like, you know, navigating this new system to midwives that have been working as a private midwife for like donkey's years and are wanting to share their stories with the other people in the room. Um, And I love all of that. You are all absolutely welcome. And certainly you're welcome to our medical colleagues as well. I am not anti you. I have respect for you. (laughs) And I think there's a lot that we can learn from each each other. So please come along as well. Love that. Thank you so much for your time. All of the details about the workshop and, uh, you know, even if you would uh, like to purchase Hazel's book, we will put that in the show notes. But we are so excited to see you in October and meet in person. But thank you so much for your time. I know your time is precious. And please make sure you stay in touch. Any more research that you're doing, we want to help share as much as we can. So thank you. Thank you, Hazel. Well, thank you for having me on today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that it's helped you on your own journey. We would love it if you would subscribe and leave us a review. To learn more about our individual online or face-to-face courses or be mentored by us for your own birth, please see our show notes for the links to our programs.